when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be reviewing the Conservative Party's conference in Birmingham and looking at the state of Brexit as those talks enter a crucial two weeks. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, political correspondent Laura Hughes, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker and Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. The Tories gathered in Birmingham for that annual conference this week, which turned out to be somewhat uneventful. The set didn't fall down around Theresa May, and she surprisingly delivered one of the best speeches of her career. Boris Johnson's efforts to derail the Prime Minister's agenda didn't go to plan either, and the party just about managed to contain its divisions over Brexit. So Mrs May made it through and bought herself some more time, but just how much? George Parker, Birmingham, another delightful event of politics. What did you make of it? Well, I thought it was quite an interesting conference. You're right that probably it wasn't the most eventful conference, but I thought in terms of the political dynamics of where we are at the moment, I thought it was fascinating because we'd all written a script for Theresa May going into the conference that it was going to be a disaster for her. It would be a torrid occasion. Boris Johnson would steal the show. She'd probably make another terrible speech and emerge from the whole affair, weakened going into the final leg of Brexit negotiations. Instead of which... Boris bubbled and fizzled, but that didn't really amount to very much. Theresa May seemed to be loved still by a large part of the activist base, I thought. could really feel that they admired her tenacity just to keep on going. And in the end, she delivered a speech which surprised everyone on the upside, and she left Birmingham in a better place than where she started it. So in that respect, I thought it was quite interesting. And Laura Hughes, what did you make of it? Well, if you compare the front pages this year to last year, last year was disastrous. And this year you had... Images of her dancing onto the stage, something that her aide said was an impromptu moment. I doubt that. I think, but, um, I think everybody doubts <laughs> that. I'm a cynic. But you know, it played off really well. It was joked about in Brussels yesterday, I saw. She really did take everyone by surprise. And I think she silenced her critics for a moment. Just before her speech, we had a Tory MP hand in a letter of no confidence. I mean, that massively backfired because when she came off stage, that letter became totally irrelevant. I don't think there was anyone else that would have supported him in that move at that moment. So, yeah, she really did surprise us. Let's begin at the end with Mrs May's speech since, George, these are really the moments that matter at political party conferences since it's taking the temperature of where the leader is, what kind of support they get from the grassroots base. And as we said, last year's conference was a sort of unmitigated disaster for Theresa mm. May because her speech, we know she was handed a P45 by a prankster, the letters fell down behind her and she had a cough halfway through, which meant she almost didn't make it through. It was just every single calamity you could imagine. She did have a slight cough again this year, but managed to maintain it. But the thing that I found was most interesting was the speech itself was actually pretty good because last year 
Her speech was just described as reheated Ed Millibandism. This speech had a much clearer defence of free market capitalism, a much clearer defence of conservative views, very strong attacks on Jeremy Corbyn, some of the strongest I think we've actually heard from the Conservative front bench. And it was all about trying to paint a vision beyond Brexit. Yeah, I think you summed it up very well there, Seb. And I think the important thing from Theresa May's point of view was to have a view of the future because a lot of us have been measuring her time in number 10 for a long time now in terms of months rather than years. And it's quite interesting that she was actually painting a picture, as you say, beyond Brexit. And I thought the very strong message coming out of her speech was this attempt to link a good deal on Brexit with the end of austerity. You had that earlier in the week with Philip Hammond, the Chancellor's speech, where he said if a good deal was secured along the lines she set out in her chequers white paper, there would be a deal dividend that suddenly the economy would get a bounce, there'd be more money to spend on public services. And for her to be able to link a good Brexit deal to an end of austerity and then sort of presenting a vision for the future where more money would start to go into things like housing, for example, the health service, other public services, staff of investment. That's quite a strong message. And actually, as you say, it was much clearer than the sort of slightly mushy Miliband light stuff we heard last year. And she, in fact, Laura, actually skated over her checkers plan for a softer Brexit, which is what George was talking about. Didn't even refer to it by name, called it our proposal in the speech. Clearly, there's an effort to whitewash the word checkers since I think it's got bad connotation within the Conservative Party. But that link is very clear there. This trying to paint this vision of a sunlit uplands. We've left the EU. Austerity has ended. We're putting money into the NHS. She announced two little bits of policy, one on a new cancer strategy and one on housing. But it was generally a bit policy light. It did feel like still a bit of a holding pattern speech. Yeah, it was policy light, but the message was clear. And you could actually read a lot of sections of that speech as a rebuttal to Boris Johnson. She talked about how the party was going to back business. That's, of course, a response to a rather rude word. She said that in a very clever way as well, (laughs) by four-letter words ending in K. Exactly. It was quite clever. And her message was, look, if you all go off pursuing your own version of Brexit, we might not get one. And afterwards, her aides were saying that if they cause chaos and vote against her final deal, which is, of course, the only moment that the likes of Boris Johnson can actually do something, then Labour might exploit that. They might call for another election. We might have another referendum. So she's saying, get in line or risk having a no Brexit. That was a very clear message. And it felt like a confident speech. It felt as though she's saying, you are all going to fall in line when you have to. We all know that. Come on now. Just on your point on Boris Johnson, there was a section at the start where she appealed for a return to decency in politics, an end to the abuse, which notionally was an attack on Jeremy Corbyn, anti-Semitism and all the stuff that was going on on the left. But it could also clearly be read as another attack on Boris Johnson, all the language he's been using about suicide vests and white flags and deranged policies and all the rest of it. It was a clear sign that she was the one who wanted to sort of raise politics out of the mire and Boris Johnson was there scrubbing around in the mud. So Boris had his moment on Tuesday, which often happens at party conferences. He comes in, there's a scrum at the train station, a scrum through the conference halls, and as has been pointed out by many other people, it's all a PR thing. Boris could easily just get in a car, come to Birmingham, and arrive in through the back door. But he loves creating the media circus. And he did this event, which is easily the biggest fringe event of the whole conference, which was in an auditorium with 1,500 people. And it was essentially a rumination on the state of Brexit in the state of Britain. And it clearly went further, George, than he's done in the past about talking about his vision of conservative values, talking about Corbyn, talking about housing. Many of the same 
same themes as Mrs. May, in fact, and of course, ended with this big, rousing effort to chuck checkers, but not chuck Mrs. May. And at the very end, he put in this reference saying, but we must get behind Mrs. May and get her to change her plans. So I sort of felt Boris missed his moment in a way. You know, someone described to me at the conference the last of his summer wine, that he has really done this criticism throughout the summer to Mrs. May, but is not willing to go over the top and challenge her. So what's the point? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like that cliche of the Chinese meal, isn't it? It feels quite satisfying at the time. And it was quite a good speech and usual soaring rhetoric and the crowd loved it. But at the end of it, you think, well, hang on, I'm still feeling like I need a bit more here. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? What next? Come and have a go if you're hard enough, Boris. That's the thing. As Laura said, there's no opportunity in Parliament for them to chuck checkers until you get the crucial vote on whether to accept the deal on whatever terms Theresa May secures in Brussels. And at that point, they're looking over a cliff edge. Will they actually be prepared to strike? Is he going to try to topple Theresa May? No, because there's no appetite in the party for it. He doesn't have the numbers to execute a coup. So he stands there on the sidelines making these attacks on her. And in the end, the media get a bit tired with it because he says the same thing in different ways over and over again. And I think the party base will tire of this because they like Boris, but they also like loyalty to the party leader. Having said that, one thing I would say about Boris is that although Some people are saying he's a bit of a busted flush at the moment. I'm not sure that when the leadership contest arises, whether that stardust quality will be transmitted via the opinion polls showing he's the favourite to win. And then suddenly there's a momentum behind him as cabinet ministers come in behind him thinking he's going to give them good jobs and a Boris Johnson administration and he gets critical mass. So I wouldn't write him off, but I think it was a bad week for him. I think that's very true. And Laura, when you looked at the amount of people who turned out to this event, when you looked at the auditorium, which was just so huge, possibly bigger in the main hall itself, and it really did remind you that Boris Johnson does have that stardust George was talking about. He does speak to the Conservative Party's grassroots and he is a star. And there are not many bona fide stars within the Conservative Party. I think the key thing that's changed for Boris the whereas he used to appeal across the spectrum to metropolitan one nation conservatives and then reach into the heartlands of England now he's very much Mr Brexit so he still has those qualities but I think his reach is probably not as great as it once was but you do have to think having seen the turnout and the coverage and the continuous standing ovations of that speech if he gets into the last two of a leadership contest at some point in the future you'd have to think he's probably still the favourite to win yeah, but then, you know, whenever you're at a party conference, you have to remember that the people there are the diehard loyalists. They're not representative people. Of, <laughs> of conservative voters. That There is a slight difference there. And there are a number of Tory MPs who would really go out of their way to stop him from becoming prime minister. Do not underestimate how many Tory MPs are more representative, actually, of Tory voters and not necessarily Tory members who take four days out of their lives and spend lots of money to come to a conference in Birmingham. But it was also interesting to watch different cabinet ministers vying for attention for what they hope will be a leadership contest one day. And the speeches that they were making, we saw Jeremy Hunt make a bizarre reach out to the grassroots, which massively backfired. He compared the EU to the Soviet Union. That didn't go down very well. You also had Sajid Javid trying to make a huge announcement on immigration. So that context was interesting. Boris, yes, he felt like the favourite there. But if you actually asked the country and voters and Tory voters who they like, I don't think they'd all say Boris Johnson. 
This is a very good point, Laura, that these cabinet minister speeches are always an opportunity for people who see themselves as future leaders to have the media attention, the attention of the party and try and build their capital. And I think out of the three main people in the whole gave those speeches, you mentioned Jeremy Hunt, that one clearly backfired. And Hunt says that his comments were misinterpreted and that was not what he was saying. But the diplomatic response has been quite huge. But the other two I thought were interesting. One was Dominic Raab, who is the new Brexit secretary, who gave a very assured speech, a very moving speech in the hall that I think showed that A, he has reached beyond just the intrinsics of Brexit but he also has a greater sense of where the Conservative Party is. The other one was Sajid Javid who is not the most natural public speaker but did a pretty competent performance. Do you think that's fair, George, or is there anyone else who spoke who grabbed your attention? Mm, no, I think I think you're right about Dominic Rabb. I thought he made probably the unexpectedly good speech of the week apart from the Prime Minister herself. I thought it was clever in the way he brought in some of his family history, a Jewish family fleeing the Nazis and so on. We found out a bit more about him that we don't necessarily hear about. You think of him as being rather slick normally. And also, I thought what was interesting is he wrapped up a quite a Eurosceptic section which appealed to the party base with an appeal to get in behind Theresa May and her Chequers Brexit strategy. So I thought it was quite a statesmanlike speech by Dominic Raab. Jeremy Hunt's speech, as you say, backfired. Trying to think who else really set the world alight. Interesting that Michael Gove once again Mm. pinned his colours to Theresa May's mast and didn't really say anything and kept a very low profile. You've got to be a bit suspicious of that, haven't you? He was very low profile. That in itself is interesting. What is he playing at? What is he doing? He's still trying to position himself as the sort of quiet voice of reason that will swoop in at the end and unite the fractious party. Mm. I thought it was interesting that he wasn't really around that much. Yeah, that's very true. And I think one thing that we often read and hear about, you know, particularly through the website service on the Conservative Home website, is what the party's grassroots feels about Theresa May. The sense I got from that conference is actually that there is still a great respect for Theresa May and they still have that great respect for the leader and just getting on with it. They may not love her and adore her as they may for other leaders, but I think there is that respect there. So at the end of all this, George, I think Theresa May's done what she needed to do, that she's shored up her position. She's got a couple of more weeks or months to push on with her Brexit strategy. But fundamentally, I think something that I wrote last week about this it still feels like that could be her last party conference as leader and that once Brexit's out the way opinions may still move against her or do you think it was decisive enough to give her another couple of years in office (laughs) I don't think any conference speeches ever changes the political weather that much and if anyone notices it at all it's probably us sitting in the hall so I don't think that changes things but um I think the base assumption of how long Theresa May is going to last is that she'll probably leave sometime next summer after Brexit's delivered But if you talk to Tory MPs and cabinet ministers, this oscillates all the time. You know, you could have spoken to them after the general election in 2017. They said she'd be gone by Christmas or even by the end of the month. Then she has a good couple of weeks and people say she could go until 2022 and fight the next election. You have to imagine what the political situation will look like if she delivers a Brexit deal, if she gets it through the House of Commons, if there is some sort of economic bounce, then the political landscape is transformed for Theresa May. Now, whether she could lead them into the next election, people say that's impossible after the disaster of last time. But it's entirely possible. I think she could go on for another year, another two years at least. We've always talked about the sense of duty that she has. I truly believe that she will stay for as long as she feels she has to. If she thinks it's in the country's interest for her to stay strong and stable leader <laughs> of the UK, she really will. She's not someone that will bow out because things get a bit difficult It will be a feeling I think she has. It will be MPs coming to her and saying it's your time to go. I think she has the self-awareness to know when she should step away and let a younger, fresher, non-Brexit face 
take over. And finally, I just want to mention my highlight of the conference, which has to be the introduction speech to Theresa May by Geoffrey Cox, <laughs> which was an unexpected joy on the Wednesday morning. Geoffrey Cox is the new Attorney General, a very little known figure. He was mostly known in Westminster for being one of the highest paid MPs, being a very renowned barrister. I was sitting very near to you, George, when this speech came on, and everybody was loving the speech. It was very much getting the attention you can imagine in a courtroom where he was a very strong Brexiter for constitutional reasons and gave an impassioned speech about Brexit, quoting Milton that was just absolutely hilarious and just a brilliant piece of rhetoric. It was superb, this amazing baritone voice. And actually, if you can be bothered, look up on the interweb, a film of The Lion King with Geoffrey Cox's voice superimposed <laughs> on it. Mufasa. It, 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 yeah, it is absolutely brilliant. It was an old school speech, but actually a reminder just of how great political oratory can be and how much we miss it, really. It was extraordinary. It was truly extraordinary. And I think people were worried, Theresa May's aides were worried, how on earth was she going to follow that? So the fact that she did you know, busted some moves on the stage and managed to outshine him tells you how good her speech was because he was just extraordinary. Meanwhile, things have gradually been bumping along on the Brexit front. With a fortnight until the next EU summit in Brussels, there are some slight signs that a deal may be approaching. A compromise solution to the Irish border question might just be on the horizon, which some believe will open the way for a solution on the future economic partnership too. But there are still great tensions between the UK and Brussels, and there is no guarantee that a deal will emerge in October. So Alex Barker, can you just take us through briefly where we're at on Brexit at the moment and we've got these two crucial outstanding issues which is maintaining a frictionless border in Ireland without breaking up the UK and defining a future economic partnership that is acceptable to both sides. Yes and we've really hit a kind of hot period for the negotiation. We have a summit coming up on the 17th of October and actually a bit against expectations a few weeks ago, they're going to make a run for it, it looks like, to try and bring this deal together. And it could go incredibly well, finish this process earlier than expected, or it could fall apart quite spectacularly. And I'm looking up at the negotiating room at the moment and the lights are on. They've all gone a bit dark in there in terms of how they're communicating about what's being offered, the compromises thought of. But there is definitely some very intensive work going on around these kind of key political decisions that need to be made to bring this thing together. So the dynamic Miranda Green in the UK essentially is just everyone just pleading that something's going to happen in the next couple of weeks because coming out of the Conservative Party conference, as we were saying earlier in the podcast, Theresa May's got a couple more weeks and maybe months from her party to give her the benefit of the doubt. And the sense that I came away from Birmingham is that if and when there's a deal on the table, the Conservative Party will probably get behind it. It's not ideal. There was always going to be that fringe of people who would not accept it. That's your people like Owen Patterson and Bernard Jenkin. But generally, most of the cabinets that I spoke to and ministers and MPs just want to get a deal now. Obviously, we still hear a lot of chanter about people's vote and all the rest of it. But it does feel as if the mood is just all about getting a deal and getting it through now. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, there are sort of 
weird parallels with the early to mid-90s and John Major's position then on trying to get the Maastricht deal through against opposition in his own party. And as you quite rightly say, May came away from Birmingham a bit strengthened and maybe slightly looking more equipped to face down her own right flank. But we do need to be cautious about that because we've been here before over the last few months where it looked as if the hard line ultra-Brexiters were on the back foot and had been slightly humiliated because they've overplayed their hand, etc. And then guess what? When it came to the crunch moment, because it's religious fervour with them, they stood firm. I think, as Alex said, it's a very hot period and it's very unpredictable. Also, there's a precedent of Tory leaders being at their most vulnerable a few weeks after conference. And we need to bear that in mind. And also, crucially, there is the question of the DUP. May depends on the DUP for her governing majority and they are incredibly hard line about this. Arlene Foster over the last few days has been starting to say the Good Friday Agreement is, in her words, not sacrosanct. There's a whole can of worms that could suddenly flip open over the subject of the Northern Irish border. So even though I think personally that May is on the right lines in trying to find a compromise because that's probably what the UK public want, whether she can actually play off these different sides of her own party and the DUP, etc., is really an, an enormous question, even if it looks like a reasonable deal that she comes back with. So, Alex, let's just look at this key issue here of the Irish border, because this seems to be what everything is hinging on at the moment. And when we had the Salzburg summit a couple of weeks ago, the signs from that were not very positive. As we now know very well, Theresa May was quite publicly slapped down by Donald Tusk, which played quite well into the Brexit hands in the UK, but not so much for those who just want to see a deal and get on with this thing. So where are we at with Ireland now? Because we seem to have had some slightly signs that a compromise might be coming together. What do you think it might be? There is definitely movement. The UK is looking for a deal which basically works around two planks. The first one would be a UK-wide customs arrangement with the EU so that Theresa May can say the UK customs territory is as one, even in this kind of backstop plan. The second part would see Northern Ireland aligned and following basically the EU's rulebook for goods, and that would be enforced in conjunction with the EU. And there could be differences with the UK mainland. Those could be minimised by other measures, but there would be a distinction. And it's a question of whether that is okay for the DUP if it's put in the right context. Those are the two main planks of this. How it comes together legally, in practical terms, how you decide when to use the backstop and when it ends. I mean, these are all very difficult questions. That's what they'll be working through now. The UK haven't actually formally put down their proposal. And I suspect they probably won't for some time because, as Miranda was saying, Maastricht. John Major actually came out of Maastricht incredibly well. He was seen as having negotiated a great treaty, pulled off some tricks at the summit that weren't expected. And what actually killed him was the gap that came between Maastricht and a vote where the issues were churned over and saw the light of day for too long politically and made it much harder to win that vote. And I suspect if they're bringing this deal together, they'll try and keep it below the radar as long as they can so that when it does emerge, you see all the respective pieces of this together. 
That's absolutely right, Alex. I completely agree. Because also, like Major, there's this weird phenomenon with May, which is if she is successful in terms of the negotiation and if she achieves a deal, then she will be at her most vulnerable at home because then she will be vulnerable to discontent on her own backbenches. And of course, Major, in the end, had to rely on votes of opposition parties to get it through the House of Commons. And it was a moment of unbelievable drama. And that option may not be open to May as well, because as we know, the Labour Party at the moment don't feel it's in their interest in any way to give her a helping hand. What about the state of the economic arrangement, Alex? Because I mentioned earlier, Mr Tusk said in terms of this key plank of checkers, which is remaining part of the single market for goods trade, he rejected that. But there have been some signs that were the UK to stay in a customs union, possibly as part of the backstop, then some member states might give way to that. This is a political declaration on future relations. And we were in Birmingham together and we saw a lot of the debate around this kind of future model. Does checkers live or die? Are we moving to a more FTA platform? What they're actually negotiating, though, I suspect the nature of the document may be more important in many ways than the content of it, in that it's non-binding. It's a joint statement. It will be precise But I suspect in part it won't be very coherent and it would fundamentally be the start of a negotiation rather than its conclusion. So there will be a lot of areas that are very difficult. In Paris in particular, there's a desire to make it clear and to be clear enough that it rules out certain things that are key planks of checkers. I think the word frictionless is unlikely to be in there in a kind of categorical way. But the Prime Minister does need something in that declaration that will allow her to credibly stand up and say, look, we've made some compromises for this backstop. It's suboptimal. We don't like it. But here's a vision for something that will make sure that we probably don't need it. And that's going to be very important as a political message to try and get this through. But fundamentally, this is really the start of a negotiation about the future. It sets a direction. It's not the end of the process. I think, as we've said many times, essentially, we're just moving the cliff edge of March 2019 to a cliff edge in December 2020, which, again, may end up being pushed back. I suspect we'll have a few cliff edge moments, actually. I mean, there might be 2020 and then another one where the backstop is used and a customs union extension may be in there. There'll be several cliff edges, I suspect which I think some people have actually said for a while, this is what Brexit should be. It should be a process, not really a moment, that you are disentangling four decades of economic and trading relations. And the idea just to end it all on one day does seem bizarre. But, Moran, let's just talk very briefly about where things are in a second referendum. There is a sense that the campaigners who are behind this are getting more coherent, they're getting better with their messaging, and they're getting stronger as well, because as we enter this tense period that Alex has just been taking us through, that's going to create more uncertainty and certainty will give them an opening to say let's think again one of the things i was really struck by in birmingham at the tory party conference was that a lot of ministers who spoke to and i'm sure alex saw this too all said university where they remain or leave if there was a second referendum now or any time before march 2019 there would be a much bigger leave vote and it would 
also break up all the parties as we know and probably create something very nasty indeed. So where do you see things on a people's vote to give it its PR title? Well, personally, I think the idea of another Brexit referendum is absolutely fraught with dangers of all kinds. And I think a lot of the campaigning for another referendum on Brexit is quite naive because there is this belief that we'd be voting on some sort of Brexit, whatever's then on the table at that point, with a default option to remain in the EU. And in some ways, if we can cancel out the last three years of our political history, which is utterly unrealistic... There's a huge issue over what the question would be. And this point you make about splitting up the parties and the disruption that it could cause, I do think that some on the centre-left who are very active in this campaign for another Brexit referendum see that as an opportunity. They quite like the idea of breaking the Tory party in two and they also think that the Labour Party's ambiguities over the Brexit question would be untenable in the event of a second referendum and then all would be up for grabs in the centre ground. It's a very, very high stakes, dangerous business. And I think it's a bit of a disaster. But you're quite right to say that the calls for another referendum are gaining volume and coherence. And it becomes more of a possibility as May's position becomes more and more difficult towards the cliff edge. I mean, I think it's an appalling idea. And Alex, what's your sense? It's hard to see how we would get there because essentially it's a threat that Theresa May made in her conference speech. She said, if you don't back my Brexit deal, then there may be no Brexit at all. And the permutations of how you get there does seem to be quite hard because one assumes you'd have to have some kind of general election where someone would run on a manifesto for a second referendum, maybe say the Labour Party. They would then have to do that, get that through Parliament and go through all that business and then hold a vote. Do you think there's any sense in Brussels that people are anticipating that or would even welcome it? In a kind of hot period of a negotiation like this, it's quite hard to distinguish between the accident risk, which is there, and the real strategic miscalculations that might have been made that will mean there's no deal or that it falls apart in Westminster. But the risk is certainly there. It's very real. There are some member states and officials who think ultimately the UK can't pursue a no-deal exit. It's just too damaging, it's too difficult, and that the politics will bend before that point. If there is ever a scenario where you see a referendum emerge or an election, it really would need to be in the kind of white heat of a market crisis where politics is stuck and there don't seem many options left apart from going back to the country. So I don't think people here completely rule it out, but I think they would be pretty wary at seeing a referendum in the UK divide the country even more and end up with a result like 50.6 to rejoin the EU. That might make them a little uh, worried. And that is the nightmare scenario, managed to finish on, that if you have this idea that everyone is still pretty divided on this and will be for a long time, there are Brexiters who still think this is the best thing ever and Remainers who still think this is a complete tragedy before our country. But if you have another referendum like that split to vote, then it's just going to keep Britain divided for even more. Well, you're then in the neverendum territory. Best uh, of three. Best of three. And also, you then, frankly, we haven't talked about this for a long time, but you then raise the prospect of the Scots saying, OK, fine, we're going to rerun our independence referendum. And if Brexit's gone really badly wrong, that's not good. You really would be opening up a set of horrendous problems for the UK. I mean, I think Alex made a very important point, though, which is that if things go very, very badly wrong and you get some sort of market crash, 
that could become a sort of economic emergency to mirror the political crisis where you might have to go to the country. But I mean, it's not desirable. And people who seem to think it's desirable that it would solve all our problems are on cloud cuckoo land, I think. Well, on that cheerful note, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Lara, Alex and Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. In the meantime, if you've liked this podcast and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Detta and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.